Good afternoon and welcome to Beyond the Pale on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York and streaming live at WBAI.org. You can also find us at our website at Beyond the Pale. That's P-A-L-E dot org. I'm Kira Feldman. And I'm Marissa Brostov. And on today's show, we'll be speaking with Mirta Ojito about her new book, Hunting Season, Immigration and Murder in an All-American Town. We'll also be speaking with student activists from Open Hillel about the national organization's crackdown on programming that features groups deemed too pro-Palestine. But first, the news. Former Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon spent the past eight years in a coma. On January 11th, he died at age 85. Here to talk with us about the life and times of Ariel Sharon is Helena Cobbin. She is founder and CEO of the publishing house Chess World Books. Their latest title is Gaza Writes Back, short stories from young writers in Gaza, Palestine. Helena, welcome to Beyond the Pale. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. So there's been no shortage of obituaries and remembrances in the past week. Just begin, what do you think Ariel Schroen should be remembered for when it comes to his legacy? You know, I don't like to remember anybody just for the bad things that he did or she did. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, there are plenty of people who can describe, you know, fun or endearing moments with Ariel Sharon, and, you know, maybe he um, loved children and animals or whatever. But as a public figure, I think we have to, you know, those of us who, I, I met him once, um, did an interview with him, but I, you know, wouldn't claim to any kind of close knowledge of the man um, in person. But... He was an important public figure in the history of Israel and that whole region, um, including all the neighbors of Israel and also of world peace, um, given you know the Arab-Israeli con- the role of the Arab-Israeli conflict in challenging world peace. And therefore, I think we are definitely entitled to judge him for his actions in that public sphere. And I don't think we should whitewash what he did. He was responsible for some of the worst atrocities in that whole region, um, dating back to Gaza in the 1950s, um, the West Bank. He, he founded um, a special unit in the Israeli military called Unit 101, whose, whose task, I don't know whether, you know, obviously it got signed off on by the political leadership at the time, but he kind of designed the task, which was to punish um, communities, Palestinian communities, generally refugee communities that were, you know, communities of people who had been forced out of Israel um, or had fled in terror at the founding, at time of the founding of the state and had then been forcibly prevented from returning to their homes and farms by the Israeli security forces, and of course there wasn't at that time, you know, a, a fence right around Israel as there is now, and, and so people would try to go back to their homes and farms as um, the UN had said they had the right to do, and Ariel Sharon and his unit 101, their task was really to go to the places 
outside of Israel's borders where these refugees were huddled under, under tents for many years and to punish them so badly um, that they wouldn't even dream of trying to go back to their original homes and farms. And, you know, that was a constant in his policy right through to 1982, for example, in Lebanon, when he was the architect of the attempt to um, completely eradicate the Palestinian political presence and much of its actual human presence from Lebanon um, on the thinnest of uh, pretexts. And he kind of led Menachem Begin, who was the prime minister, Sharon in 1982 was the defense minister, he sort of led him into a war much bigger than what Begin had been um, intending. And of course, as we probably, most of us recall, well, okay, <laughs> those of us over a certain age will recall that the culminating terrible event of that um, invasion of Lebanon was the, the massacres in Sabra and Shatila. Um, in which somewhere between 800 and 3,500 unarmed Palestinian women, children, old people, the ones that had been left behind after the departure of the, P the negotiated departure of the PLO forces, were brutally murdered over the course of about 42 hours by the um, Lebanese proxy forces that had been assembled and trucked to the, the refugee camp by the Israeli forces under Sharon's command. Um, so, you know, his, I think, as with any person who commits terrible acts, those acts cannot be whitewashed, even, you know, in, when the guy has just died. Um, so I, I think we have to say that this claim that George W. Bush made um, later on in 2002 or so, by which time... Um, Sharon had been rehabilitated in Israel and was the prime minister once again. Well, for the first time, he was now the prime minister. Um, and George W. Bush described him as a man of peace. It was incomprehensible. I mean, I want to I want to talk more about this this idea of Sharon kind of moving toward peace at the end of his life and going from you know a so-called hawk to a to a so-called dove. Um, you know, in 2005, Ariel Sharon withdrew Israeli troops and about 7,000 uh, settlers from the Gaza Strip, and yet Gaza constitutes just 6.14% of the territory of a Palestinian state based on the 1967 lines. So, yeah, talk to us about this kind of idea of, of, uh, of Sharon having kind of turned into a dove at the end of his life. Yeah, I mean, I, I found that was a constant theme in much of the mainstream media coverage in this country, Kira. Um, you know, people writing these kind of obituaries, many of which had been prepared years ago, of course, because he was on life support and, you know, everybody knew he was going to die at some point. But they, they were all trying to find something, you know, good to say about his political trajectory. And so they, they made it into this, you know, I once would and see kind of, you know, redemptive moment that in 2005, finally he recognized that he needed to um, come to terms with Palestinian nationalism and therefore um, very courageously undertook this withdrawal from Gaza. I have to say, you know, I, I'm very familiar 
with his actions in Gaza as well as in, in Lebanon. Um, and I don't see it as a courageous, you know, step toward peace at all. Back then in 2004, 2005, when he contemplated and then carried out this, um, we can call it a redeployment of Israeli civilian settlers and troops from the Gazan interior. But remember that ever since then, um, Israel has maintained iron control over all the borders of Gaza by sea, by air, and including that short portion of, of uh, Gaza's border that, that abuts directly onto Egypt, actually because of the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty and because of subsequent negotiations. Israel controls that border as well. I know because I've been across it, and I know that when you come to the Egyptian um, border control, they always have to consult with Israel before they let you in or out. So he, you know, he redeployed those settlers and troops from the Gazan interior, but kept control and tightened control over every means of communication that Gaza had with the outside world. And um, that meant, for example, that in 2008 with Operation Cast Lead or any of these other military actions and incursions that Israel has launched into Gaza, this is not seen as a, a military invasion of another country such as would um, trigger, you know, the Security Council to do something. This is just seen as yet another, you know, military slash security action that Israel is taking in inside territory that it actually continues to hold under military occupation under international law. So that's the first thing, you know. Israel did not withdraw from Gaza. At, at the time, you know, there were negotiations about, well, first of all, there were other negotiations that um, the U.S. government was very much involved in uh, between Yasser Arafat, who was then the head of the uh, Palestine Liberation Organization and um, the Israeli government. Sharon, when he made this unilateral withdrawal from Gaza, completely torpedoed that whole peace process because he didn't do it through, the, uh, through any form of negotiation. He just did it and completely undercut um, Arafat and the negotiating process. But you know, there were many people at the time, including Jim Wolfenson and others, who tried to, um, let's say, make a silk purse out of a sow's ear um, and to use this um, drastic act of, of Sharon's in order to salvage something from the peace process. And they did negotiate under uh, Condoleezza Rice something called the Agreement on Movement and Access, which assured to the Palestinians the right of access between Gaza and the West Bank, and it assured the Palestinians of Gaza um, access to international markets through Israel. And Sharon, after the, the, the redeployment, completely just ignored all those, all those agreements that he had signed and tightened the siege. And, you know, from that day to this, it is almost impossible for a normal person to get from Gaza to the West Bank or vice versa. It, the, the whole idea of Gaza, um, Gaza, farmers in Gaza 
raising strawberries and fresh-cut flowers that Israel would hurry through their airports into European markets so they could sell them and get the revenue, that was um, a pie in the sky because, because the moment that there was any... Well, it, it, actually, it never took off at all. A, a few shipments went through and a few shipments continue to go through. But essentially, it makes Gaza completely dependent on Israel's good faith in getting those goods to market. Gaza has no opportunity to export its goods um, or import goods. It has no opportunity to have a, uh, a productive economy. And I know that because you know, I'm working with these writers in Gaza. We, we can't even get copies of our latest book into Gaza for the, for the writers to see their names in print. I mean, it's I just, you know, when people say 2005 was this, like, move toward peace, and he then had plans to go on and, and undertake additional withdrawals from the West Bank, no. I mean, his plan, which is called Convergence, and is still carried on by, by practically all the major political parties in Israel today, is essentially to create, instead of, well, in the name of what they call a Palestinian state, to create a, a, a whole series of little camps, you could call them Bantu stands, but they are all, you know, in terms of connecting with each other or connecting with the outside world, intended to be kept under Israel's control. So, um, no, I do not see him as a man of peace at all. He, a lot of people said... Um, in these obituaries, that he represented the zeitgeist of uh, Jewish Isra of Israeli society, and I think that's true in terms of you know the direction that Jewish Israeli society has taken over the past 30 years. Yes, he represented that zeitgeist, but no, it is not a trend toward peace. If you look at what's happened in Israeli society as a whole, I want to to back up and trace the historical arc of Ariel Sharon's long career. In 1953, uh, Sharon led a raid into the West Bank town of Kibia, which was then occupied by Jordan. Dozens of civilians were massacred. Talk to us about that and how you see uh, this beginning of his career kind of fitting into the course of, of, his, of Ariel Sharon's life. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was really all of a pattern from there. And then, you know, in the 1973 war, he was um, a leading figure. It, the 1973 f war was originally a huge um, strategic surprise for, for Israel, for the, for the IDF. And, you know, he went in and he organized the forces. I don't contest that at a, at a certain kind of tactical level and operational level as a military commander he was he was very competent and he managed to rally he and some of his other you know colleagues among the generals managed to rally the the Israeli forces um, and get them to come back and he ended up completely encircling the Egyptian third army inside Sinai you know from a tactical tactical or operational um, standpoint that was brilliant but he always you know used that position of power to try to force the opponent into submission he never in my you know long analysis of the guy 
used a position of power in order to negotiate a decent peace that, you know, if, if you're feeling secure enough, you should be able to give your opponent something of what he or she needs. No, you know, Sharon in Lebanon in 1982, he had secured the, um, the negotiated exit of the uh, PLO fighters from Lebanon. That wasn't enough for him. He wanted to dismantle the, the many, the large number of Palestinian refugee camps that were there. He wanted to scare all those refugees and break up those communities that had been there already in Lebanon for, for a couple of decades at that point and chase them all to, to Syria or someplace. He, you know, he just always wanted to force submission and um, dispossession on people rather than you know, saying, okay, we Israelis are now strong enough, we can offer you a decent peace. Um. Today, 1.5 million Gazans remain under blockade, of course. Um, you were last in Gaza in 2011. I mean, one of the great coups of Israeli rhetorical maneuvering is kind of getting the mainstream media to talk about how Gaza isn't occupied, Israel pulled out, and, and so on and so forth. But talk to us about what conditions are like there today in terms of the daily lives of Palestinians. Well, you're right, um, Kira, that, they, that the Israeli um, authorities have, have actually succeeded brilliantly in, in uh, painting this picture of, like, we withdrew from Gaza and they sent us rockets, you know, like, how ungrateful could they be? They're just people of violence, you know, unchecked violence, which is not what happened after 2005. I mean, actually, after 2005, there were, um, you know, th there was a indirectly negotiated ceasefire that allowed that Israeli redeployment to take place. Um, that's one thing to notice. It wasn't negotiated with the PA in Ramallah. It was negotiated with the people on the ground in Gaza, most of whom were um, Hamas at that time. So that's the first thing. There was a negotiated withdrawal, um, but it wasn't the formal negotiation. And, you know, afterwards, the, the ceasefire held long enough that there were elections, both in Gaza and in the West Bank, a unified set of two elections. The first was after was for um, president after Arafat had died. Well, he, he died in November 2004, and then speedily thereafter they held elections for his successors. And then there were elections for the PA parliament. Again, a unified set of elections in Gaza and in the West Bank, including in East Jerusalem all those Palestinians um, voting together, and they voted a Hamas government. And the U.S. was absolutely taken by surprise. Israel was completely taken by surprise. And that's when the punishment, the collective punishment of the people of Gaza really started, um, because Hamas was actually Hamas. Hamas is stronger in the West Bank than it is in Gaza, but that's another story. It was more concentrated in, in Gaza. And, and so, you know, there have been many, many ceasefires since then. And a large proportion of them, the Israelis have broken. For example, the one in 2008 that lasted for six months, and then the Israelis broke it on November the 4th, 2008, on a day when Americans were 
not paying attention because we were busy uh, voting in a groundbreaking new president here. Um, so, you know, this story that from, from Israeli authorities that we withdrew from Gaza and they gave us rockets, well, no, it was much more complicated than that. When I was in Gaza in 2011, first of all, it's extremely hard to get in. Um, I was able to get in with my husband only because we were um, good friends with the Egyptian foreign minister at the time. Um, this was shortly after the fall of Mubarak in uh, Cairo. And we did manage to get in through this rougher crossing. And so you, you go around Gaza. Um, it seems it seemed then and on the other the previous occasion that I visited very orderly. And, um, you know, the streets are clean and um, children are going to school in an orderly way. There's uh, some small business activity. Um, the uh, British specialist, Yazid Sayyid, who's a professor um, at, the, at King's College London, um, has actually pointed out that governance in Gaza is a lot better than it is in the... Um, controlled areas of the West Bank where there's a lot more corruption and violence just you know amongst the people themselves so you 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 know you can drive up and down the Gaza Strip it's about 36 miles long um, and not see any armed men um, there are places where if you go you do see armed men but they're very you know they're disciplined they're usually in some kind of either black or camo uniform it's not like lawless city. <laughs> um, and there are, as I said, shops and schools and restaurants and street food. Uh, one of the other books that I published is the Gaza Kitchen Cookbook, um, which celebrates the culinary heritage of Gaza. It's a wonderful view into, you know, Gazan people day in, day out, lead normal lives as much as they're able to under the situation of harsh siege. Um, there is a, a kind of an esprit, a, a kind of a community spirit that I recognize from the stories my, my father and older relatives would tell me about, you know, living in London under the Blitz. You know, that when, when, you're, when you're, you're feeling kind of threatened from outside, as Gazan people do every day, you develop a kind of a community spirit and, you know, you help each other out. Um, of course, there, there's terrible poverty in Gaza because of the strangling of the productive economy. Um, but there are also pockets of riches. Um, I don't know how it is now. Of course, since the, um, the counter-coup in, or rather, the, you know, the coup, the, <laughs> the counter-revolution in, in Cairo, things are much harder in Gaza because under the um, revolutionary or, you know, whatever you call it, when the Muslim Brotherhood um, and the elected authorities were in power in Egypt, they kind of turned a very blind eye to the, um, to the tunnels, and a lot of people went in and out. Goods were going in and out through the tunnels. Even cars were going in and out through the tunnels. My author and friend, Miko Peled, walked in through a tunnel. He said, you know, you could walk three people abreast through the tunnel when he went in. I think that's all closed down, so I'm sure the economy is now far worse than it used to be. Um, but, you know, these young writers that I'm working with, they have, you know, quite a few little 
think tanks, there are universities. Most of these writers come from a fine, fine university called the Islamic University of Gaza. There are about three or four universities, but that's really the flagship one. Um, of course, their, um, all their science labs were bombed during Operation Castlet, but they were able to rebuild them. Um, and you know, their English language and English literature program is excellent. They um, have a great, you know, early childhood teaching program, um, teachers' college in general. So, you know, it, it's very different when you go there and, and visit with people and see what their projects are. But at the end of the day, a society of, it's like, I guess now around 1.7 million people can't be self-sufficient in the world economy. And if it's, you know, if it's to survive over the long Hall, it needs to be connected to the world economy. Um, every Gazan family has, at this point, after how many years, 47 years of military occupation are we talking about? Every Gazan family has, let's say, more than half of its members forced to live in diaspora because the Israelis won't let people back in, you know, once they've been out for a job or for education. After a couple of years, they lose. Israel still controls the population registry and says who can go in and go out. So there's this massive Gazan diaspora all around the world, which is an interesting new phenomenon. And um, so if, if Gaza could just be opened up economically to the outside world, I think it could um, do really well. But of course, you know, the Gazan people themselves are very intent on saying they are part of Palestine, that... Jerusalem and Hebron and Ramallah and all those other cities are just as important to them as Gaza City. Um, so we're kind of at a political impasse, and our government here seems to completely con completely support this collective punishment that has been imposed on the people of Gaza for way too many years at this point. I think that's what we need to change. We need to lift that any way that we can. And we're going to have to leave it there. This is Kira Feldman, and you're listening to Beyond the Pale on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We've been speaking with Helena Cobbin about the death of Ariel Sharon. Helena is the founder and CEO of the publishing house Just World Books. Helena, thanks for coming on Beyond the Pale. Great to be with you, Kira. Thanks so much. And this is Marissa Brostoff. As any close observer of contemporary American Jewish life knows, college campuses have for years been the site of increasingly vocal Palestine solidarity activism and increasingly draconian attempts from the American Jewish establishment to shut that speech down. The most recent battleground is the campus organization Hillel, which is the official home for Jewish life on hundreds of U.S. campuses. We have with us today Swarthmore student Emily Unger and recent Brown graduate Lex Rofess, who are both involved in Open Hillel, a, well, they can explain exactly what the relationship is with Hillel, but a group, let's say, um, that is trying to change the culture of uh, suffocating speech um, uh, at Hillel. So, Emily and Lex, do we have you both? Yes, indeed. Yes, Thanks for hi. having us. Okay, great. And I got both of your institutional affiliations right? 
Um, I actually uh, went to Harvard. I graduated in the spring. You went to Harvard. I'm sorry. Okay. So, um, to start with, um, can can one of you just explain, or both of you, what Open Hillel is and how it got started? Sure. Um, sure. So, so it's basically Open Hillel is an organization that was well, we're we're sort of more more of a campaign than an organization that was put together um, a little more than a year ago um, by by Emily primarily Emily and some others at Harvard. Um, in response to what they saw on their own campus as as a really difficult uh, climate to engage in conversations about Israel Palestine from from really across the spectrum of belief, and what they knew is that it's not just a problem at Harvard; it's a problem that we face all around the country in in Hillel organizations. And so, um, specifically, our campaign is geared towards working on on some policy that Hillel has instituted. Um, where any organizations that are deemed to delegitimize, demonize, apply a double standard to Israel, or who endorse the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, any of the organizations who do that are not allowed to co-sponsor with Hillel in any w- way, shape, or form. So we're working to to make sure that that policy is is no longer in effect, so that student groups around the country can work with with a wider variety and, and really uh, engage in the dialogue that's necessary if we're going to make progress. So I'm, I'm curious about your own trajectories, um, how you wound up getting involved in the group um, uh, or, or, the, or the campaign. So, um, Emily, let's start with you. How, how did this come about for you? Well, at the time when the campaign started, I was chair of the Harvard College Progressive Jewish Alliance. And we're an organization that is affiliated with Harvard Hillel. And we had worked in the past um, co-sponsoring events with the Harvard College Palestine Solidarity Committee, which is a um, pro-Palestinian group on campus. We'd also co-sponsored groups with Harvard Students for Israel. Um, And we had a particular event that we wanted to put on, which we thought was relevant for the Hillel community. It was an event called Jewish Voices Against the Occupation. Um, featuring an American Jewish activist and an Israeli Jewish activist who had, um, you know, been part of some protests against home demolitions in the West Bank. And we were going to co-sponsor this group with the Palestine Solidarity Committee. And we actually had a meeting with the executive director of Harvard Hillel. We explained the event to him. Um, The event was approved based on the content of the event and the speakers. And we began advertising the event. And although we thought we had made it clear that the Palestine Solidarity Committee was co-sponsoring, apparently that hadn't been clear. And when our advertisement stated that that was the co-sponsorship, um, there was an immediate uproar, mainly from donors to Harvard Hillel and other people in the uh, extended American Jewish community, not um, from students involved in Harvard Hillel. And... Um, we were told that we could no longer hold the event in the Hillel building because of the co-sponsorship of the Palestine Solidarity Committee. And I think that before that time, we actually hadn't realized that these um, standards for partnership that Hillel International has, the ones that Lex just talked about, even existed. Um, And we realized that these standards were 
making it impossible for Palestinian student groups to ever co-sponsor with Hillel on campus. And we just thought that that was, you know, really doing harm to the great opportunity where we have these students who are willing to work together to engage in dialogue and cooperation on difficult issues and have the and to have Hillel stand in the way of that just seemed, you know, really sad and not at all in line with our Jewish values. So we, um, at, in the Harvard College Progressive Jewish Alliance, we released um, an op-ed about it at the time, and then we, as we realized that this was happening at other campuses also, we decided that we really needed a broader movement to address the standards um, created by Hillel International, since it is an international organization. It's not just limited to one school. Um, so we started the petition on our website. We started the, you know, we started the campaign. And since then, students from dozens of other campuses have gotten involved and signed the petition and become involved in organizing. And, um, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to at some point the recent events at Swarthmore Hillel, and um, it's really been spreading around the country in a in a inspiring way. Given that it basically started with, you know, about seven or eight students at Harvard Hillel. So, you say that you were surprised when you were told that you couldn't co-sponsor this event. Were you genuinely surprised? Why? Oh, Given the the kind of general stance that Hillel has taken in in recent years, um, wherever we stand, we stand with Israel, quote unquote. Um, did it did it actually surprise you? Did it actually strike you as some kind of shift in their policy um, that they would crack down in that way? I think that it. I was not surprised that it was controversial, but I was surprised. Um, that it ended up being entirely banned, partly because the Progressive Jewish Alliance had co-sponsored events with the Palestine Solidarity Committee at many times in the past. We had just never tried to co-sponsor an event within Hillel. Mm. And I think that it it just doesn't garner the same national attention because nobody knows what the Progressive Jewish Alliance is. Nobody is paying as much attention as they are when they hear that Harvard Hillel is um, co-sponsoring an event or hosting an event that is co-sponsored by the Palestine Solidarity Committee. So, I mean, we, as I said, we actually met with the executive director of Harvard Hillel before um, uh, beginning to advertise and organize the event, which is unusual, and usually students can organize events without having to consult the executive director of Hillel. So I certainly was aware that it would be controversial, but... I I really didn't think I didn't expect it to be banned, and I and as I said, I hadn't realized that these policies existed. Um, the specific standards for partnership that Hill International has until we sort of encountered them head on in this way. And in my experience, I mean, Hillel is you know every organization has issues and. You know, and Hillel, I don't think, is in general as liberal as the American Jewish college student population at large. But it is a fairly, you know, pluralism is, is one of Hillel's main values. And I do think that Hillel, in my experience, 
and I was very, very involved in Hillel as an undergrad, um, does do a good job of promoting religious pluralism and, and supporting diversity of perspectives on most issues. And the Progressive Jewish Alliance is a part of Hillel. It is an affiliated group, even though we um, express more left-wing views on Israel than the sort of quote-unquote mainstream Jewish view. And so I had I had sort of been been used to that environment of, of respecting and supporting diversity, and I wasn't expecting it to get um, shut down in, in quite so dramatic a way. Now, Lex, turning to you, um, what's been happening at Brown University, and how did you get involved with this? Um, so, so my involvement actually actually stems mostly not from my involvement at Brown specifically, but because when when Emily and some of her colleagues at the Progressive Jewish Alliance at Harvard were starting things, I was one of the student representatives to Hillel's international board of directors. Um, and so, there's at any given time there are um, approximately five or so students from really uh, generally the United States, but anywhere around the world could be on this board of directors and I was uh, so I was really um, in terms of the Jewish establishment I was I was sort of at the center of this um, and what I realized is as much as I did actually feel comfortable on my campus um, expressing my views about about the conflict um, I was I was realizing that in many ways I felt less comfortable significantly less comfortable in an international context with with some of the donors that I would interact with, but also um, as with the organization more generally, and and so I, I knew Emily a bit from from a great event that we both went to in the Northeast, um, a Shabbaton for for Jews interested in in just some wacky and interesting Jewish programming for a weekend, and and a lot of us um, tended to lean left on Israel and many other issues, and so we we wanted to to discuss and consider how this how this change could start to occur. And I realized that um, it was my responsibility, as as the title student representative implied um, to the board of directors. It was my responsibility to solicit input from students on this. And what I found is when I asked lots of students um, what needed to improve at Hillel, um, over and over again, what I heard was political pluralism. Israel-Palestine discussions on my campus are either not happening because we're afraid of having political events at all, or they are happening, but they're very much one-sided. And, and if you try to do something that is not in the traditional establishment pro-Israel zone, you face a great amount of difficulty. And, and that's uh, for an organization whose fundamental goal is Jewish life. That's, con that's disconcerting. Um, and for me, I come at this as Ultimately, my bottom line is I really desperately desire a strong and thriving Jewish future. And I recognize that Hillel, as the primary organization for Jewish college students, is so vital and, and, and so crucial to that success. And we, it, its policies cannot exist in a way such that any cohort, any, any broad cohort of students feels boxed out. And that's, that's what we're dealing with. Hillel, as Emily mentioned, is very good at denominational pluralism, at, at being open to Reformed Jews, Orthodox Jews, Conservative Jews, 
Um, and they recognize that that is part of their mission. Where, where I think they, they still need, we, I, I'm not going to use they, I'm going to use we, because we are part of Hillel. We are, we are very engaged recent alums. Um, we, as an organization, need to be as pluralistic politically as we are religiously if we're going to engage all Jewish students around the country and the world. So, and I want to open this up um, to, to both of you again. We'll start with Emily. Um, and, and this is the last question we're going to have time for, unfortunately. But why not say, because what I keep hearing um, uh, from you guys and, and for everything I've read, Hillel is such a giant moneyed organization. It is so reliant on its donors um, and on decisions that are made sort of very high up in the organization. Why try to save Hillel from itself by staying affiliated with the group at all? Why not just say, this is a small-minded organization. Right now, its loyalty is to big donors and not to students. And we're over it. We can have Shabbat dinners on our own time. We can create our own Shabbatones. So, Emily, you want to you wanna feel that one to start with? Sure. I mean, I think that for me, when I came to campus my first year of college, I was really seeking Jewish life, and because, you know, Hillel is the Center for Jewish Life on campus, I became very involved in Hillel. It really became my primary community at school. Um, I was involved in the Jewish a cappella group. I song-led Shabbat services in the Reform Minion every week every Friday night. Um, I got involved in the Jewish queer group on campus, which was also affiliated with Hill. I got involved in the Progressive Jewish Alliance. And Hill really became my home on campus. And and, and I felt it was, it was a really important, valuable, um, vibrant, pluralistic community where I could interact with a lot of um, people with different Jewish experiences, different Jewish upbringings than where I had and where I could learn an enormous amount about Judaism. And I think that that was absolutely huge for shaping my Jewish identity. Um, I don't think that I would be in, in the same place that I am today without Hillel. And, you know, I really come at this campaign from a from a place of somebody who was already involved in Hillel, already loved Hillel, um, I didn't want to have to leave that community. I didn't want to feel like I was being expelled. I, you know, I don't think that, you know, yeah, sure, we could form our own, you know, the Harvard College Progressive Jewish Alliance could break off from Hillel and host stone spot dinners, but it wouldn't be as, it would, it would lose a lot to have just a sort of a small break-off group where everyone sort of agrees on things and has a similar, you know, perspective and experiences. I want to be in that pluralistic environment where I'm being exposed to different views, and I, you know, I want to be attached to the broader American Jewish community. It's such a huge part of my life that um, being cut off from it seems like it would be really, actually, I would say tragic for me, and I don't want other people to feel like they need to be cut off and need to, like, form their own break-off rebel groups in order to express their views. I think that we learn more from all being in the same community and being able to talk to each other and 
I think that's so. Way. So, I'm sorry. Speaking speaking um, of being cut off, I I unfortunately have to cut you guys ahead. off because we have to go on to the next segment. But thank okay. you, thank you so much, uh, both of you. So this is Marissa Brostoff, and you're listening to Beyond the Pale on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We've been speaking about Open Hillel with Emily Unger and Lex Rofes. Emily and Lex, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm Kara Feldman. In 2008, a group of teenage boys on Long Island murdered an Ecuadorian immigrant named Marcelo Lucero. The teenagers were out quote, hunting for beaners. Next, we're joined by Mirta Ojito. She is an assistant professor at the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. She's the author of Hunting Season, Immigration and Murder in an All-American Town, which was just published. She's a former reporter for the New York Times and shared a Pulitzer Prize in 2001 for a series of articles about race in America. And she's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Mirta, welcome to Beyond the Pale. Thanks very much. So first to begin, tell us what happened that night in November 2008. Marcelo Lucero and his best friend from childhood, Angel Loja, were taking a walk near the train station in Patchogue, a pretty village in Suffolk County, where they have lived for a number of years, and, the, and where there is a growing Ecuadorian community. And it was near midnight. It was not a very cold night, and it was foggy. All of a sudden, they saw a group of teenagers approach them. Angel Loja thought they should run away, but they were they seemed to be trapped because of the way the streets were laid out in the particular place where they were. So they decided to stand their ground and fight. And this, they knew They had heard that a group of teenagers had been going around town and attacking immigrants. So I think they had an inkling of what was coming. They knew what to expect. The teenagers attacked them. Marcelo Lucero took off his belt and his jacket, wrapped the jacket around his arm, and kind of waved his belt around as if to keep the group at bay. And the belt buckle hurt one of them. In ranging, in, it, he got very upset because of that. The young man was Jeffrey Conroy. And he had a knife with him, ran towards Marcelo Lucero, and plunged the knife on his chest upper part of the chest, closer to the shoulder, actually, and um, killed him. They, these young people ran away, and um, they were immediately arrested, not very far from where the attack took place. And what happened to Jeffrey Conroy and to, and to the other perpetrators? They're all in prison. Jeffrey uh, was the only one who went to trial, everybody else pled guilty to various charges, and Jeff is was sentenced to 25 years. And was the case treated as a hate crime? Absolutely, absolutely, a hate crime. Um, 
Okay, so so zooming out to some of the larger issues that this case exposed that got you interested in it. Actually, why don't you start uh, by telling us sort of sort of more generally what did get you interested in this case? Um, some of the largest themes that I touched on the book. When I was a reporter for the New York Times a long time ago, I had written a story about how immigrants seemed to be bypassing the cities and moving straight to suburbia. At that point, it was a relatively recent phenomenon that sociologists and demographers were just taking note of. And I ran across a study that two professors from Albany had conducted that pointed to that phenomenon. And so I went to a a nearby place, uh, Havistral, near New York City, and I wrote a story about it, what was happening in that place. But at that time, it was it was fairly new, and the professors at that point, the ones who conducted the study, they they warned of consequences to come. They said it was going to change politics in America. It was going to change the way people related to each other in suburbia. It was going to, in fact, change suburbia. And that was sort of always in the back of my mind, and I thought I ought to go back. I ought to do a follow-up. Then I left daily journalism. I wrote my first book. I came to teach. And though I never forgot, I never did follow up. And when I heard about this case, I immediately wondered, this must be what they meant about the consequences. This is one of the consequences. Not the only consequence, but it's one of the consequences. And in fact, it was it was a, a it's sadly a perfect example of the tensions that take place when you have a, a group of people that, in fact, bypass the city and move to suburbia. Um, the cities have traditionally been the places where immigrants have integrated to America, where they have assimilated to the country, where they learn the language, where they learn the rules where they learn what's acceptable behavior, where they get their first jobs, where they make a little money, and then they get they move to a better neighborhood and a better neighborhood, and then eventually they move to suburbia. That's just sort of been the traditional path. That's no longer happening. So now why has that changed? Because there are enough immigrants out there in suburbia to create enclaves with jobs and housing, and they're right to their friends and to their relatives, wherever they are, in this case, most of the immigrants in Patchogue, for example, are not only Hispanics, they're from Ecuador, but not only that, it's very specifically, they're from the village, a village about 30 miles from Cuenca called Wallaceo. So that a friend writes to a friend, and that friend brings the wife, and the wife brings a cousin, and the cousin brings another friend, and pretty soon everybody in town is here. So really, um, they are... That's the way Marcela Lucero reconnected with Angel Loja. They found each other in the streets of Patchog. They didn't even know that they were here. When the local librarian was concerned that there were a lot of Hispanics in town not using the services that the library had, she asked a good friend who was from Ecuador, and the woman said, well, you know what you need to do? You need to reach out to the paper, not the local paper in Spanish, but the paper in Wallaceo. She sent an email to the paper in Wallaceo. The publisher didn't even reply to the email. Instead, published the email as if it were a letter to the editor. And two days later, the same day that the paper arrives in Patchogue by plane, 
immigrants began pouring into the library. And when she asked them, how did you get here? I mean, how do you know about us? They said, oh, we read it in the paper. Not the local paper again, the paper in Wallaceo that was already in Patchog. So that's a story where it seems like uh, the connections between immigrants and uh, the old country for them um, really sort of work to create a resource uh, in in the town that they're living in now. Uh, but your larger point seems to be that there are challenges that immigrants face in suburban areas that they don't face in urban areas, um, a lack of resources for them, and at the same time that it's harder for non-immigrants in these places, in, in these suburban areas, to adapt to new immigrants coming in right. um, in a way that it's not for, for their urban counterparts. So, so why is that on either side? Because... People who move to suburbia, for the most part, are doing it because they want to get away from, quote-unquote, urban issues, which could be, again, quote-unquote, because this is not always the case, but a lot of the perception is um, bad schools, um, expensive and crowded housing, um, immigrants, newcomers, just... um, not just a, a toxic atmosphere in in physical ways. They just want air, space, grass, peace of mind, lower crime rate. That's also the reasons for the most part that people have always moved to suburbia, by the way, historically, health. Um, and so they were used to hiring this because that's always also happened. They would hire these people to to work in their gardens or to take care of their kids or to clean their homes, and then these people will would simply disappear at the end of the day. They didn't know where they went, but they would disappear. Maybe go back to the cities or go to another neighborhood or go someplace else. What started to happen was that these people did not disappear. This was home for them as well, so they stayed in this town. Um, and so it became, all of a sudden, these people who thought they had left behind, again, all these, quote-unquote, urban issues, they had the urban issues next door. I housed, for, for example, with an absentee landlord where 10 or 12 people had moved in together, mostly single men, to save money because they were working hard not only to support themselves but to support their families back home. So... People feel uncomfortable with that. You know, not only are there 10 men here, but they each have a car because they have to get to work, or maybe they have trucks because they work in gardens or, or construction. And who are these people? And we can't even understand them. And do they know how to take care of the lawn? I mean, this, these things are not trivial issues. These are very important. They have to they connect to the value of your property, the value of your home. Suffolk County is one of the places, uh, you know, Long Island, people pay some of the highest uh, taxes in the country. They worry about these things. On the other hand, these people, what do immigrants need when they come to a new place, no matter where they come from and what language they speak? Well, they need to learn the language right away. They need jobs. They need school for their children if they have children. They need health care. They need a variety of things. The cities are used to that. Cities are prepared for that. Suburbia is not always ready for that. And so you have to create those things. I mean, in Patchogue, frankly, 
It was uh, very, she's in the book, Jean Kalita, very alert and a very connected librarian who realized that these people needed Spanish language classes and began offering them in the library and citizenship classes for those who could become citizens and began offering them in the library. But not every place has those classes available free of charge. So these are things that you need to, to work with. So, Mirda, unfortunately, we're going to have to go um, in less than a minute, but just one question, if you can very quickly tie this all together for us. What did the case that the, the story that you tell in Hunting Season reveal to you about how things have changed since you first encountered this phenomenon 12 years ago? 12 years ago? When, when you wrote the, the New York Times story. Oh, I don't think they have changed that much. Okay. I think that what they said was going to happen did happen. And sadly, I mean, the events that I narrate in the book happened in hunting season, happened in November 8, 2008, but uh, not very long ago, 28 miles away from Patchogue in December, I believe it was December 6 and 7, a group of teenagers were again arrested because they went out attacking Hispanics again. Uh, this was in 2013. So I don't think that things, uh, things have changed that much. I do not think that the hunting season is over. We've been, we've been speaking with uh, Mirta Ojito about her new book, Hunting Season, Immigration and Murder in an All-American Town. Mirta is an assistant professor at the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. Thanks for coming on Beyond the Pale. And that's it for this week's Beyond the Pale on WBAI in New York at 99.5 FM and online at WBAI.org. You can find archives of all of our shows at our website, Beyond the Pale, that's P-A-L-E dot org. Thanks to Tony Ryan for engineering today and stay tuned for Shelton Walden with Walden's Pond.